Hi, crime junkies. It's Ashley here. And you all know how ready I am at any moment to drop down the rabbit holes of mysterious cases to look for answers. And there's actually one right now that I cannot stop spiraling about with more rabbit holes than I can count. In this season of Counterclock, investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra begins investigating Doug Wag Jr.'s mysterious death after he was found struck on a strip of railroad tracks. But the more Delia has dug into this case, the stranger things have gotten. And you guys, there is truly so much going on. A string of mysterious deaths, a bank robbery gone wrong, conspiracy, corruption, and it may all be connected. You can binge all of Counterclock Season 6 right now in the Crime Junkie Fan Club, or you can listen to new episodes weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by the Capital One Venture X Card. Earn unlimited 2x miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. Plus, receive premium travel benefits like access to over 1,300 airport lounges and a $300 annual credit for bookings through Capital One Travel. Unlock a whole new world of travel with the Capital One Venture X Card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Lounge access is subject to change. See CapitalOne.com for details. Sometimes it's challenging to connect with friends and family who aren't native English speakers. So learn their language with the most trusted language learning program, Rosetta Stone. Their efficient, immersive lessons are used and beloved by millions. The True Accent feature even provides feedback on your pronunciation. Learn on the go with convenient, flexible, and customizable lessons as short as 10 minutes. For a very limited time, our listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash crimejunkie. Hi, Crime Junkies. I'm your host, Ashley Flowers. And I'm Britt. And the story I have for you today has so many wild twists and turns. It's really more like 10 stories in one. But even though it's a complicated and difficult story to tell, we still wanted to do it because this woman's story has never really been told in depth before. And I've talked about this before, but this is the main reason we hired an investigative reporter in the first place. So we can cover those hard stories involving victims who don't get a ton of attention. And the woman I'm going to tell you about today might be one of the most vulnerable victims we've ever talked about on this show. And we probably never would have heard about her disappearance if it didn't coincide with an infamous serial killer's reign of terror in Poughkeepsie, New York. And while many still think she could be one of his victims, the people who knew her and the police who worked the case, they're not so sure about that. Now, this case is local for our reporter, Nina. While she used to work at the newspaper in the area and her husband actually works for the agency investigating this case, neither of them ever worked on this investigation. And once I heard about this story, I couldn't get it out of my head. And I guarantee you won't be able to either. This is the story of Michelle Eason.
It's Thursday, October 9th, 1997, and in the city of Poughkeepsie, a man named Scott goes into the police department to file a missing persons report. He's not a worried father or husband. He's a case manager for the Dutchess County Department of Social Services, DSS. It's been nearly two months since he's seen or heard from one of his clients, 26-year-old Michelle Eason. And that's unusual because typically Scott sees her at least once a month, and he's used to hearing from her even more than that. You see, Michelle has an intellectual disability. According to DSS records, she's able to live on her own, but she's not totally capable of caring for herself. So caseworkers check in on her at home, monitor her needs, and they help with some day-to-day stuff like managing the monthly benefits that she gets through Social Security. Now, Michelle's life is chaotic, and she doesn't have a predictable schedule. Her addiction to crack cocaine led her into survival sex work, and she moves around a lot. There have been times when she's gone MIA for, you know, a few days, even a couple of weeks, but this time is different. Caseworkers know that she hasn't picked up or cashed her last few checks, which Scott tells police is highly unusual. Because besides sex work, it's her only source of income. So even if she wasn't going to be around, she would always contact his office to let them know where to send the checks. But that's not the only reason Scott is concerned, because by the time he reports her missing, he's already done some digging of his own. He stopped by her apartment twice. He contacted everyone who might know where she is, her boyfriend, her boyfriend's mother, her landlord, some of her relatives in New York City who she would sometimes go visit. And he's even reached out to the county jail and a rehab center that she went to recently. So he's kind of like started off the investigation already. Right. The problem is no one he's talked to knows where she is. A missing person, especially one who is as vulnerable as Michelle, is always cause for concern. But in this case, specifically this time in this city, it's actually cause for dread. Because you see, Michelle is the fifth local woman to be reported missing within the past year. So immediately, alarm bells start going off for City of Poughkeepsie Detective Lieutenant Bill Segrist. Like the other missing women, Wendy Myers, Gina Barone, Kathleen Hurley, and Catherine Marsh, Michelle is a sex worker who struggles with substance use disorder. Unlike the others, Michelle is black. The other four missing women are white with slim petite builds and brown hair. But they have enough in common to raise the possibility of a connection. The women all seem to know each other. All five of them lived in or spent lots of time in Poughkeepsie, which is about 80 miles north of Manhattan. It's a small city of about 30,000 people with some big city issues like high rates of violent crime and poverty. But still, it's not a place where people, at least, you know, five in a row, just vanish on a regular basis. We already know that all the things that make sex workers vulnerable are the things that make finding them so hard, too. Because they can be hard to track. They don't have set routines, and it might take longer for them to be reported missing in the first place. And perpetrators know this. They figure that once the women are reported missing, they won't be top priority for police. And in a lot of cases, they're right. Now, in Poughkeepsie, by the time Michelle is reported missing, an investigation is already in full swing related to the other four missing women. City of Poughkeepsie police have been working with other local law enforcement since January of 1997, so nearly a year at this point. And they've even contacted the FBI after the fourth woman went missing back in March. But they haven't been having any luck. And right away, they run into the same issue with Michelle's case that they have with the others. There's a significant gap of time between when she was last seen and when she's officially reported missing. 
Based on what her case manager Scott is telling them, police think she was last seen in early to mid-September, either at or near her apartment on Main Street. But the last confirmed sighting of her that we know of is on August 19th, when she went to Scott's office to report some flooding in her apartment. And according to police records, Michelle cashed her last social security check a few days later on August 25th. So the detective, Bill Segrest, reaches out to the FBI agent he's been working with, a criminal profiler named Charles Dorsey. He's just wanting to get some advice from him. But unfortunately, there's still not much Charles can tell him because there's really nothing to profile. There's no crime scene. There's no physical evidence. Honestly, there's no evidence that a crime has even been committed at all. But detectives do have one thing working in their favor. They're able to piece together a timeline of the months and even years leading up to Michelle's disappearance. And that's because her DSS caseworkers have been keeping record of all of their interactions with Michelle. Every phone call, every home visit, every conversation, dating back to at least 1991. Now, our reporter Nina got access to those reports through a public records request, and some of the entries are super detailed. It's almost like reading a diary, but from someone else's perspective. The reports paint a picture of a woman who had the odds stacked against her, who would get overwhelmed and frustrated, but could still find reasons to be hopeful. She might argue with her caseworkers one minute and then bake and decorate cookies for them the next. She wanted to be a good mother to her three children, but her substance use disorder was all-consuming. Her friend Antonia remembers Michelle as a woman who was just trying to survive. The only way she knew how to was the streets. She wanted to get off the streets. She wanted to get her kids back. She told me how much she loved her children. She really wanted to stop doing what she was doing, but she just was stuck. She was a very timid person, very sweet, you know, very caring. No matter what she did out there, she, she had a good heart and um, she was just lonely for family. She didn't have nobody. Michelle dreamed of having a loving family, but she was exploited and abused by so many of the people in her life. And the more police can learn about those people, the more they'll be able to focus their investigation. Whenever somebody goes missing in a relationship, you know, the first person you're going to look at is the, uh, is the mate. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams, or timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. Pride yourself on finding the best deals and savings? Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop. Because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, travel, dining, and more. 
Your favorite stores like Macy's, Urban Outfitters, and Sephora pay Rakuten a commission for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the commission with its members. That's you. Cashback is deposited directly into your PayPal account, or Rakuten can send you a check. You can even maximize your savings by stacking cashback on top of other deals, like store sales and coupons. Shop for everything from fashion to beauty, home decor to groceries, even kids' school supplies. You're already shopping at your favorite stores, so why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Membership is free, and it's easy to sign up. I love using Rakuten because I truly don't even have to think about it. The app is just there, hanging out and giving me cash back on so many of my normal everyday online purchases. All I have to do is shop. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.com. Your cashback really adds up. Police have plenty of reasons to suspect Michelle's longtime on-again, off-again boyfriend, who we're going to call George. Wait, I thought you said police consider her disappearance to be connected to the other women. Do they think George is involved with all the cases? No, they're just looking at George in relation to Michelle's case. But they're doing the right thing here. Like, they're not jumping to any conclusions and just lumping the cases together. Even though there are similarities, they're still treating Michelle's case as its own investigation, looking at everything to see where the evidence takes them. Right. Like, you can't say all the cases are linked till you rule out all other possibilities. So they aren't, like, honing in on one specific theory at this point. Right. And listen, there are plenty of red flags around George. Police find that there were reports of abuse, physical and psychological. And in the initial missing persons report that he filed, her case manager says that he thinks she might have left to get away from George. Antonia remembers hearing about George's abuse and seeing Michelle with a black eye. When I asked her about it, she said it came from him. So she said straight up, he's the one who gave me the plan. Yes, yes. She was scared of him. The cops already know George when they start looking into him. Like Michelle, he's got a substance use disorder, and he had been arrested for selling drugs in the past. When detectives interview George, he tells them that he and Michelle have been involved on and off for more than a decade. They met in 1986 when he was in his 30s and she was 15 or 16 living in a local group home. At the time, Michelle was a ward of the state, actually New York City, because her mother's parental rights had been terminated. Police reports show that she ran away from the group home at least a few times, and George says that she would stay at his place. Between 1990 and 97, Michelle bounced around a few different places, and she had three kids. Her oldest and youngest she had during times that she and George were together, and her middle child she had with another man while she and George were not together. So who has the kids after she goes missing? Well, all three children are actually in foster care. Michelle did have custody of her oldest daughter for a few months, but the two younger kids had been in foster care since they were born. Now, one of the detectives on Michelle's case, a guy named Walt Horton, says George was a difficult guy to interview. He's not the most forthcoming person, but luckily police don't have to rely on his word because those DSS records are like a map of Michelle's life, at least part of it, like her ups and downs with George. And it turns out there was a lot going on in those months leading up to her disappearance. Michelle finished a 28-day rehab program in June of 1997. Her case manager, Scott, went to her apartment on June 11th, the day after she got home, and she told him that she was at odds with her daughter's foster care worker, in part because George wasn't allowed to visit the baby without Michelle, and the baby's like six months old at the time. And I guess this is because they were waiting for blood test results to confirm that he was the father. 
Still, she seemed hopeful in this time. The apartment was clean. She talked about getting a job. She wanted George to even move in with her. So she was planning for the future. But by June 23rd, things with George had turned again. On that date, Michelle told Scott that she had filed a police report against George because he hit her. She was afraid that he was looking for her. So she was going to go visit a friend in Beacon, which is about 30 minutes from Poughkeepsie. And she was also planning to get an order of protection against him. But by July 8th, things had swung again and they were back together. She told her case manager that George had been nicer lately. He was staying with her again. And she also said that she'd be going to the hospital for a few days to have an operation, what's known as a DNC. A DNC is a procedure to remove tissue from a woman's uterus. Now, most of the time, women get them for some pregnancy-related issues, like after a miscarriage or even as a method of abortion. But DNCs are also performed on women who aren't pregnant for other medical reasons. So do we know why Michelle was getting a DNC? No, unfortunately, there aren't many details in her case manager's records about it. So we don't know why. And honestly, we don't know if it ever actually, like, happened. We just know that she was planning on it. And there's also nothing in the records about Michelle being pregnant around that time. Although we do know Michelle went somewhere. Because on July 14th, George called Scott to let him know that he hadn't seen her for a couple of days. Was he worried? Eh, Not so much. Like, he wasn't calling to get people looking for her, from what I could tell. He was calling because the rent hadn't been paid. And George knew that her caseworkers paid the rent directly to her landlord from her social security. So basically, he was calling to just, like, make sure they got on that. So it kind of sounds like he was more worried about getting kicked out than about where Michelle was. Yeah. And Michelle still wasn't back when Scott went to her apartment a few days later. But George was there with another woman. He admitted that he was letting sex workers sleep and shower at the apartment for a fee. And Scott told him that these women had no legal right to be in Michelle's apartment. And I guess Scott seemed to think that George was acting as these women's pimp, which George completely denied. Now, when Scott asked about Michelle, George said he hadn't seen her for two weeks and he was starting to get worried. But he also thought she just might be in Beacon. And sure enough, Michelle resurfaced two days later when she called DSS, and she had been in Beacon. She had gotten arrested there for trespassing and was in a county jail. Once she was released on July 30th, she went to the office to pick up her checks. And there's a conversation between Michelle and Scott detailed in the DSS records that jumps out to detectives. Britt, I want you to read the case manager's entry, just subbing out any real names. Sure. It says, quote, Case manager advised Miss Eason that on last home visit, George had girls staying at the apartment and that she needs to resolve this. Also, case manager was advised by the foster care worker that George was not the father of her baby and she needs to tell him. Miss Eason said she was informed about this but has not told George yet, but intends to. End quote. Now, I'm not sure if Michelle ever did tell George that he wasn't the father or if anyone told him. But considering that this conversation took place within a month or so of her going missing, obviously detectives think it could be huge. Plus, Walt says police heard that Michelle was pregnant when she went missing and that George was not the father. Wait, is this related to the DNC procedure from July? 
I don't know. Again, there was nothing in her case manager's report about a pregnancy then, but her official missing persons file in the National Crime Information Center database classified her as pregnant at the time of her disappearance. So also this kind of means to me that like if she was at the time, do we not know if she had that DNC procedure? Did the DNC procedure not have anything to do with her pregnancy? This is a big question mark that there's just no documentation around. But if she was pregnant, this is important because pregnancy is a really dangerous time for women in abusive relationships. In fact, there was a study published just last year in Obstetrics and Gynecology, which found that women who are pregnant or were recently pregnant are more likely to die by homicide than pregnancy-related causes, and they're frequently killed by a partner. And the risk is even higher for Black women. So... You're saying she was for sure pregnant or? No, I'm saying I, again, I still don't know. Some of the reporting is conflicting. Like I said, the National Crime Information Center says yes, but it's not confirmed in any documentation that we've seen from her caseworker. And we don't have any kind of like medical records for Michelle. And honestly, if that's not complicated enough, it's not that there is just one truth. Like it's not just she was pregnant or she wasn't. It could kind of be both. Like, she could have been pregnant in July and either lost or terminated the pregnancy and then gotten pregnant again. We reached out to an expert, Dr. Hector Chapa, who's an obstetrics and gynecology specialist and assistant professor at Texas A&M College of Medicine. And he said that after a DNC, a woman can get pregnant once she starts ovulating again and her uterus has healed, which can happen within two to three weeks after a miscarriage, depending on the circumstances. I don't think we'll ever know for sure if she was pregnant at the time she went missing or just before that or what. Still, Walt told Nina that detectives brought up every possible motive during their interviews with George, and he insisted he didn't know what happened to her. Although, he says he does have some theories. During my interview with at one point, I said to him, what do you think happened to her? Nobody could find her. What do you think happened? And um, he said, well, you know, maybe somebody uh, knocked her off and they filled a bucket with cement stuck her feet in and threw her in the river. That's very specific. That's very specific. And, you know, I tried to, to narrow him down onto like where it might have happened or get any details to confirm that statement. And uh, he wouldn't go any further, but he said that a number of times. George also throws out some people for police to look into. He tells detectives that, you know, he's heard a rumor that Michelle is staying with a guy in another county near Dutchess, but all he knows about him is that he's a black guy who people call JC. And then he says, you know, maybe you should also check out one of Michelle's clients, this white guy named Richard, who gets really jealous when other men come near her. Oh, and while you're at it, there's a guy from this group home that she was in who moved to Oklahoma with his family, and maybe she might have gone with him. Oh, and her landlord has paid her for sex multiple times. Maybe there's something there. And what about the father of her middle child? And this guy named David that she was seeing for a while while I was in jail. Have you checked him out too? And he just kept going like this, on and on, just throwing people's names out there. Bill Segrist says it didn't seem like he was being helpful so much as he was kind of keeping tabs on the investigation. Yeah, like either trying to figure out what the police know or just trying to throw the lead away from him. Exactly. Investigators do follow up on these leads, though. I mean, everything is worth checking out at this point. Although, as far as we can tell, nothing really comes of any of them. 
But there were some other names George brought up that caught detectives' attention because they were people detectives already have their eye on. Now, I mentioned that George would stay at Michelle's place even when she wasn't there, and he wasn't the only one. She had a habit of giving her keys to other people, and according to DSS records, people would use her apartment with or sometimes without her knowledge. A few people that stayed at her place sometimes and apparently used it as a drug stash house were drug dealers from the Bronx and Brooklyn. George tells police that at least two of the dealers blamed Michelle for taking their drugs and they had beaten her up in retaliation. But the drug dealer's revenge could have gone far beyond a beating. Rumor had it that Michelle had ripped off a drug package from the dealers that were staying in her apartment and they killed her for it. But the police had already heard at least part of this rumor. And it wasn't so much a rumor to them because it came from Michelle herself before she went missing. Except there was more to the story. Michelle told them that she and George had stolen the drug package. She told this to a police officer named Bob Parada. He worked a lot of street-level investigations involving drug sales and sex work, so he knew most of the local sex workers, including Michelle. You know, every time I went by, I'd say, be careful. She knew that I was out for her best interest, even though I knew what she was doing. You know, I wasn't going to mess with her. Not long before she disappeared, Michelle told Bob that she and George had stolen $400 worth of crack from those dealers. It was a specific, specific amount. Not just a package, but a $400 package, you know. Why did she tell him that? Well, he says that she told him like a, hey, if something ever happens to me kind of way, like check these guys out. It was basically an FYI. And here's the thing we noticed about Michelle from going through all the records. Even though she had been arrested a few times, she actually still seemed comfortable reporting things to police, which we know isn't always the case. I guess my question is, was she like officially a police informant? No, it wasn't like that. It was more like incidents that happened to her. Like specifically, she's not informing on other people. And there are dozens of reports dealing with times Michelle told police about being, you know, locked out of her own apartment by people. Times she told them about being stabbed, shot in the foot, assaulted, robbed, harassed. Just like a laundry list of horrible stuff. So now that Michelle is missing, Bob starts thinking back to that story about the drug package. And he wonders if maybe they both stole the drugs, but George put all the blame on Michelle. Maybe the drug dealers did kill her, or maybe they told George that he had to handle it. Now, another person detectives talk to is a woman whose name is redacted in the reports. So we're going to call her Danielle. She's a sex worker and a confidential informant, and she'd actually worn a wire to go into Michelle's apartment and buy drugs from George on September 17th of 97. So was this wire related to Michelle's missing persons case at all? No, by this point, Michelle hadn't been reported missing yet, but it was in a time that she is thought to have gone missing, if that makes sense. It seems like Danielle was wearing the wire strictly related to a drug case that they were working, and it just happened to be in the apartment of someone who would later be reported missing. Anyways, according to a note in the police files, Danielle tells detectives that several weeks after she wore the wire, she went back to Michelle's apartment. And she says one of the drug dealers punched Michelle and hit her with a chair leg and that another dealer shot her. Wait, several weeks after September 17th? That's like early to mid-October. Wasn't Michelle already missing by then? Yeah, so in all likelihood, she was probably missing by September 17th. Because remember, by the time that she was reported missing on October 9th, it had been weeks since anyone had seen her. She hadn't picked up her checks. Yeah, so 
Investigators don't think the timeline completely adds up here. I also can't tell from the reports if Danielle was saying that she saw this incident happen or heard about it from someone else. Right. But detectives run into this issue a lot during the investigation. A bunch of the witnesses are using drugs heavily, and one of the side effects is memory loss. So some of the stories are just, like, not coming together. But they still try and check them out. But remember... There are four other women who are also missing. It'd be a pretty big coincidence if Michelle's disappearance wasn't connected. So in October of 1997, police set up a sting operation. They send undercover officers out to pose as sex workers, thinking that if all of these cases are connected, maybe they can lure in whoever is behind this. And right away, they catch a really big fish. It's a beautiful moment. Your baby is taking their first steps. And then comes the not-so-beautiful moment. Blowout, diaper leakage, messy stuff where you really don't want it. Thankfully, this can all be avoided with a parent's must-have diaper, Pampers Cruisers 360. Pampers Cruisers 360 have up to 100% leak-free fit. The blowout barrier in the back helps prevent leaks, no matter how active, on-the-go, or wild your baby moves. Josie pretty much skipped crawling, and the girl is now full-on running. And Pampers Cruisers 360 has saved me from some very massive, messy situations. So as soon as your baby starts standing or walking, get them in Pampers Cruisers 360. Because unlike other diapers, there are no diaper tabs. Instead, they have a stretchy 360-degree waistband that you can pull on so easily. Add Pampers Cruisers 360 and free and gentle wipes to your cart or pick them up at your local grocery store or big box store. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. You'll step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Use your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Search for hidden objects from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris and customize your very own luxurious estate island. Collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. And you can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The person who pops up is someone that's been on their radar since the start of the year a guy named Kendall Francois. Now, they don't catch him in the act of, like, trying to kidnap their undercover officer or anything like that. He was just picked up on solicitation charges. But the fact that they had him was a big deal because, you see, way back in January of 97, once detectives started to connect the dots between missing women, they told street cops like Bob to ask sex workers for information about their clients, you know, who seemed to have a bad temper, who's violent, basically, who could be doing this. And Kendall's name came up over and over again. Kendall is a hard guy to miss. He's six foot four and weighs over 300 pounds. He also has some major personal hygiene issues, like the guy's nickname is Stinky. 
But what really sticks out for police is that many of the sex workers they've spoken to about him say that Kendall is rough and can go from nice to enraged at the drop of a hat. Now, Kendall doesn't actually live in the city of Poughkeepsie. He lives in a house on Fulton Avenue in the town of Poughkeepsie, right over the city line. And while that might not sound like a big deal, it actually meant that when the city of Poughkeepsie cops got suspicious of him, they had to get a whole different police department involved, which was the town of Poughkeepsie police. So back in January of 97, detectives in both departments join up to monitor Kendall for a couple of weeks. They follow him while he drove around and even put a surveillance camera in the parking lot of a doctor's office right across the street from his house where he lives with his family, his mom, his dad, and his little sister. At the time police started clocking him, Kendall is a 25-year-old community college student. He spent a few years in the army, but now he works as a hall monitor at a local middle school. But despite all of this surveillance and all the work police did back in January, it didn't turn up anything. But now, on October 17th, just eight days after Michelle was reported missing, they've arrested him on these solicitation charges. So he sits down with police to talk. According to reports from that arrest, Kendall admits to hiring sex workers a couple of times a week. And while it's not spelled out in the reports, everyone Nina spoke with for this story said that police definitely ask him straight up about Michelle. And he says that he has nothing to do with her disappearance. Not only that, but Kendall, who is a black man, tells police that he doesn't hire black women for sex because he's not attracted to them. And quote, black women in Poughkeepsie all have attitudes, end quote. Here's what is spelled out, though. Britt, I'm going to ask you to read part of the police report, which was written by a city of Poughkeepsie sergeant about this interview with Kendall. It says, quote, he says he likes rough sex. I asked him what he considered rough sex, and he said screwing hard. He indicated he was against death and beating, although I never asked him for his views on it. He then told me that a redacted name had told him that the police think it's him killing the prostitutes. This answer was also unsolicited, as I did not ask him this question, end quote. So based on the statement, he's just offering this information up like, oh, yeah, I'm a suspect in this thing. It's no big deal. Yep. I mean, to be fair, they are looking at him. I mean, I think it's pretty clear to him that they're looking at him, but like they didn't say that out loud. So the sergeant's next step is to ask him to take a polygraph. But Kendall says that he's got to think about it and it doesn't end up happening. And before they can get any closer to answers in Michelle's case or the string of missing women, another woman is reported missing on November 13th. Mary Healy Giacone is also a sex worker with a substance use disorder and a Poughkeepsie local. Just like the four women who had disappeared before Michelle, she is a petite white woman with brown hair. Was Kendall in jail when Mary went missing? Because that's not even a month after he got arrested. No, he wasn't in jail. The solicitation charge was only a violation, which is like the least serious type of charge. According to New York state law, the most jail time you can get is 15 days, and most people charged with a violation are just released. So I don't think he went to jail for it. So basically, he's like around. But it's not like he's the only one police are looking at. In fact, another suspect emerges in late December. On December 27th, a sex worker tells police that a guy named Royce tried to abduct her. He got really angry when they were in his car and he wouldn't let her out. She actually ended up jumping out of the car as he was driving just to get away. So police track this guy down and charge him with, quote, unlawful imprisonment and patronizing a prostitute, end quote. 
According to a police report, Royce tells the cops that sex workers are, quote, sluts, whores, diseased, end quote. And he wants to know why they're not doing more to get rid of them. Obviously, this catches their attention, but they're even more suspicious when they learn about his criminal history. They find out that in the early 1980s, when he was stationed at a military base in South Carolina, Royce kidnapped a 12-year-old girl off the street and raped her in his car. Oh my God. Yeah, he had just come to the Dutchess County area a couple of years ago, sometime after he was released from prison for the rape conviction. He tells police that he spent months living in a tent in some nearby woods, but it seems like he's in an apartment in Poughkeepsie at the time of his arrest. Detectives also ask him to take a polygraph, but he lawyers up. So Detective Bill Segrist brings in cadaver dogs to search the woods that Royce mentioned, looking for any of the missing women there. But again, turns up nothing. Even with all of these potential suspects, as 1997 turns into 1998, police are no closer to finding out what happened to these now six women. Then, in January of 98, just a few days into the new year, a new lead comes their way that, on its face, could be really promising. A man named Anthony is arrested after failing to appear in court on a minor charge. According to police records, detectives find out that he was actually the pimp of most, if not all, of the missing women prior to their disappearance. When he's in custody, Anthony tells police that he's been keeping a log of all their clients, all the men who paid these missing women for sex. Anthony says that he has a notebook filled with their names. And he says there's one guy in particular he thinks might be involved in Michelle's disappearance specifically, a guy named Chris. Not only is Chris apparently rough with sex workers, Anthony says that he saw a bracelet in Chris's bedroom that he is sure belonged to Michelle. He knows this because he says the year before, he and some friends, Michelle being one of them, went to a jewelry store and had matching bracelets made, like same design, but everyone had their own initials on them. He claims that he saw that same bracelet with Michelle's initials on Chris's dresser just a few days ago. And by the way, this isn't just like a casual comment as they're talking to him. Anthony actually gives a sworn statement to this effect. Oh, wow. Detectives talk about getting a search warrant to go into Chris's house, but they don't think that they have strong enough evidence of anything yet. So Walt Horton calls the jewelry store that Anthony mentioned in his statement to see if they can at least prove that the bracelets exist or existed at some time. And they can't because the store has no record whatsoever of an order like that. Because they didn't make them or they just don't keep records like that? Well, the exact wording in the report is that the store had, quote, no recollection or record of such an order, end quote. So it sounds to me like the story is saying, we didn't make anything like that. Can't they see Anthony's bracelet or anyone else who had a matching one to prove that they even exist? Well, conveniently, even though Anthony keeps saying that he still has his matching bracelet, he can't ever seem to find it to show them. And the same goes for that log of all those client names. I was just going to ask you about that. Yeah, it never appears. Again, he talks about it, but can never actually produce it. So Anthony isn't turning out to be a reliable source of information. But detectives still kept that Chris guy he mentioned in mind. They're not ready to rule anyone out yet. But there is one person who just, even amongst everyone else, keeps bubbling to the surface of every conversation. And that's Kendall Francois. 
sex workers are still saying the same disturbing things about him. And although no one has wanted to press charges, it's enough to make police decide to, you know, just go have another go at him. And when they do, this case takes a wild turn no one saw coming. If you're in the fan club, you can listen to part two of this episode right now. Otherwise, I'll be back next week to tell you what happened. To see photos and sources for this week's episode, go to crimejunkiepodcast.com. And follow us on Instagram at crimejunkiepodcast. Again, you can listen to part two right now in the fan club, which is also on our website, crimejunkiepodcast.com. Otherwise, we will be back next week with part two. Crime Junkie is an audio Chuck production. So, what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. The living room is where you make some of life's most beautiful memories, but your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture from Ashley Store is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley Store's high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, comfortable, and easy to clean for more mess and less stress. Shop the life-resistant, high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.